Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of New Books in Law. Today we will be discussing Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America by James Foreman Jr. James Foreman Jr. is a professor of law at Yale Law School. He teaches and writes in the areas of criminal procedure and criminal law policy, constitutional law, juvenile justice, and education law and policy. His particular interests are schools, prisons, and police, and those institutions' race and class dimensions. Professor Foreman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and your background? Sure. My name is James Foreman, Jr. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I went to Brown University, and I went to Yale Law School, clerked for Bill Norris on the Ninth Circuit, and I worked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor for a year. And after that, I became a public defender in D.C. I was there for six years, during which time I took a year off to start an alternative program for kids in the juvenile justice system called uh, My Angelou Public Charter School. And then uh, I became a professor. I started at Georgetown. I visited NYU for a year. I visited at Yale, and then I came to Yale full-time, and I've just spent this past year visiting out at Stanford Law School. I live in New Haven, and I have a wife and an eight-year-old son. What motivated you to defend people charged with crimes in Washington, D.C.? Well, I felt like it was the civil rights challenge of my generation. My parents met in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the 1960s, and they were an interracial couple. My dad's African-American, my mom's white. They were an interracial couple at a time when that was illegal in many states in the country. You know, we just had the 50th anniversary of Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court decision striking down uh, Virginia's law prohibiting uh, interracial marriages. And so I could look back by the time I was clerking you know, 20 years after they met, and uh, I could see everything that had happened and changed in American society that their generation struggle had made possible. You know, I could see that African-Americans like myself had opportunities that were unimaginable to a black man of my father's generation. And at the same time, I could also see that for many in my community, kids that I grew up with in Atlanta, I grew up in a mostly black neighborhood in Atlanta, and just looking at the statistics, I could see how many people were still not only not able to take advantage of the gains of the civil rights movement, but were caught up in this growing web of punitive policies that would eventually get the name mass incarceration. And so I felt like one of the obligations that I had was to try to identify the leading issues of racial injustice. And for me, it's looked like our criminal justice system. And so I felt like the best thing I could do, the most powerful thing I could do, the most impactful thing I could do was become a public defender. Are there any cases that you worked on as a public defender that stand out to you as embodying the ideas underlying locking up our own? Absolutely. I mean, the case that I write about in the introduction of the book to me, typifies, or in a lot of ways I view as kind of the case motivating uh, my interest in, in writing the book. And it was a young man I represented by the name of Brandon. I changed the names of all of my clients and 
judges and other people in the book to protect their privacy. But Colin Brandon in the book, he's 15 years old and he's charged with possession of a gun and a possession of a small amount of marijuana. And, you know, as we were just discussing, I had taken the job because I viewed this as the civil rights issue of my generation. And so when I was in court representing him, I was asking for him to be released. I was asking for him to be put on probation. I had a letter from a teacher and from his coach at school and his mother and grandmother were in court with us. They were standing right behind me, basically in the, in the courtroom seated right behind me. And as I was making my request and then I listened to the prosecutor making her request, she's asking for him to be locked up. She wants him to go to Oak Hill, which is DC's juvenile prison. And it was a horrible, horrible place. I mean, it was almost in every few months, there would be another story in the Washington Post about the brutality and the violence and the drugs and the failure. I mean, it was a real blight on, on, on DC. And, you know, she knew that. The judge knew that. Everybody in the court system knew. They, everyone read the articles. And she was asking for him to be sent there. And the judge who had to make the decision, Judge Curtis Walker, is himself African-American. So he's looking out of the courtroom. He's got Brandon, who's an African-American man facing sentencing, or young man facing sentencing. He's got me, an African-American lawyer, arguing for release. The prosecutor is African-American. The judge is African-American. And the judge gave Brandon what we call the Martin Luther King speech. And we called it that. We had heard it before in my office. And the judge's speech basically starts off with him looking at Brandon and saying, Mr. Foreman has told me that you've had a tough life and that you deserve a second chance. Well, let me tell you about tough. Let me tell you about Jim Crow. The judge had been a child in those years. And so he tells Brandon about what it's like to have separate schools and separate water fountains and no job opportunities. Then the judge starts to wrap up and say, so here's the thing, son. People fought, marched, and died for your freedom. Dr. King died for your freedom. And he didn't die for you to be running and gunning and thugging and carrying on and embarrassing your family and embarrassing your community. That was not his dream at all. And so he wrapped up. He said, I hope Mr. Foreman is right. I hope you turn your life around. But right now, actions have consequences. And your consequence is okay. They locked him up. And I went back. You know, I visited Brandon in the cell block behind the courthouse. There were three young black boys, young men there with him, and I thought about his mother and grandmother probably out in the hallway crying. And as I left the courtroom, I, you know, noticed that the bailiff and the court reporter, like everybody in the court that day was African-American. That wasn't true of all cases, but it also wasn't rare. And so I thought about the fact that you know, I guess to put it mildly, you know, not everybody in my community agreed with me and my colleagues at the public defender's office that this was the racial justice issue of our generation. Because how could they think that and yet still allow the system to keep churning on? You know, at the time, the Sentencing Project had reported that one in three young black men was under criminal justice supervision nationally. And in D.C., it was one in two. And this is in a city that has a majority black 
city council, a majority black police department, a black police chief, a black mayor. There's significant Af- African American representation throughout the political system, the police system, the criminal system, the court system, and we still have numbers like one and two. So for me, it raised the question that is captured in the title of the book, but is the animating question of the book, which is, how did it come to be that so many in my community came to contribute to locking up so many of our own? How did it happen? that over the last 40 or 50 years, as America launched a criminal justice expansion, the likes of which the world has never seen, that so many in my community went along for the ride and thought that that approach made sense. That's really the question that I grapple with in the book. Could you tell us a bit of the history behind African Americans gaining positions within the government and the criminal justice system, especially in D.C.? How did this inform their views on law enforcement? Well, historically, we've had almost no representation, right? So if you go back in time, under under Jim Crow segregation, the whole structure of government was such that African Americans, you know, didn't have the right to vote and certainly weren't holding office. I mean, in Reconstruction, yes. But after Reconstruction, so after, you know, the 1880s onward, the basic story is... You, know, you get a 10, 15, 20-year blip of African-American representation after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period. Then you get redemption, and then you basically get African-Americans disenfranchised, denied the right to vote, excluded from political office either by law or local practice. And that's the story really until the 1960s. And then in the 1960s, you get a combination of the Voting Rights Act, which didn't just cover the South, And you get a level of political mobilization and a level of activism in which people say, you know, we're going to run for office and we're going to participate in elections and we're going to fight the restrictions and the exclusions that have been in place for centuries. And in D.C. specifically, what that looks like is that D.C. had always been denied home rule by Congress, right? One of the works of the American political system is you have this this federal enclave, right? The District of Columbia and it's, you know, protect Congress's power over the district is enshrined in the Constitution. But over the years and over the decades and over the centuries, local activists, black and white in D.C., push for self-government. There's a new book coming out. Y'all should look at it when you when it comes out by Derek Musgrove and their co-author, and it's called Chocolate City, and it's the story of the fight for democracy in the District of Columbia. It's a great book. I read it in draft form. It's going to come out in the fall from the University of North Carolina Press. And these local activists are fighting, and they finally get a level of enfranchisement and home rule that's captured by, in 1965, D.C. gets the power to elect its own city council to go to the polls and vote. And that city council would not immediately, but in the year shortly thereafter, get control over criminal law of the city. So D.C. has this odd combination of having less power than most places because of Congress has the right to veto, but more power than other cities in that the D.C. council passes the sentencing law. So in D.C., you know, the D.C. council decides 
operates almost like a state legislature on certain issues. For example, should we have mandatory minimums? What should be the maximum sentence, sentence length for, for every crime? Um, these are, these are done by the city council, whereas in most places it would be done by the state government. So there's this, there's, there's this, there's this, um, oddity of DC has less power in some ways and in certain ways has more power. And that gave me the opportunity to really look at, to use DC as a microcosm, really to ask the question, well, what would an enfranchised African-American community do if it had the authority to make criminal law? And just one other thing that I'll say about the, the question you asked about the history. So in the 1970s, there's an 800% increase in African-American elected officials nationwide. So the story that I tell is DC focused, but it also has national relevance because when Jim Crow is formal Jim Crow, de jure Jim Crow is defeated and people get the right to vote, African American communities get to right, the right to vote. One of the outcomes of that is this explosion in black representation, still underrepresented as compared to the population, but much more represented than was true under the Jim Crow years. Could you give some examples of the ways racism shaped the political, economic, and legal context in which the black community and its elected representatives made their choices? Absolutely. That's a great question. It's an important part of the book because one of the things I'm trying to do throughout the book is both, is force people to keep two ideas in their head at the same time. So, and I'm forcing myself to keep two ideas in my head, which is that this is a story about African-American choices and decisions and actions and thinking at one level. But any story that's a story of what African-American actors are doing is also going to be a story of the larger context in which they're making those choices, right? And that larger context has a history and it has a politics. And so I'm always trying to rem- make sure the reader remembers that there are constraints on the ability of the people that I'm writing about to do what they might like to do. So some of the context, right, is historical. Piece number one. So everybody that I'm writing about, African-American officials, they come into office in the 1970s inheriting the responsibility of protecting for and representing communities that for centuries had been discriminated against, right? These are the neighborhoods that were redlined. When the United States government said you can't get loans, it was these communities that people couldn't get loans to improve their housing, right? When usurious lenders came in and stripped black wealth, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes about it, Richard Rothstein writes about it. These are the neighborhoods that they're targeting. When highways are put through the middle of certain communities in the 1950s and the 1960s, it's these communities, it's black communities overwhelmingly or disproportionately that are devastated. So they come in into power with the responsibility for protecting communities that in a lot of ways have been, uh, had the ability to protect themselves severely undercut by the actions of mainly the federal government and state governments as well. So that's one constraint. Then there's a political constraint because the people that I'm writing about are mostly local elected officials. And a big part of the argument of the book is that local matters for 
understanding how criminal system got built and understanding how we need to change it going forward. But at the same time, there's limits to what local actors can do. And you see that over and over again in the book. You see African-American elected officials, mostly at the city level, saying things like, we want more police, we want more prosecutors, but we also want the federal government to invest in housing. And we want the federal government to invest in jobs programs. And we want more funding for schools. And we want national gun control. We want Congress to act on gun control. We want a Marshall Plan for urban America. We want the United States government to invest in black communities the way it invested in Europe after World War II to rebuild, to revitalize. And those things don't happen. The federal government, which African Americans don't control, right, remain a, we remain a minority voice at that level. The black elected officials can lobby, but they can control, but they're not a majority. And they don't get the federal government to respond in the way that they hoped for. So they, I argue in the book that they had this all of the above strategy to fighting crime and violence, but they get one of the above. And the one of the above that they get is law enforcement. In what ways did the heroin epidemic of the 1960s and then crack epidemic two decades later influence African-American attitudes towards crime? I don't think you can understand really anything about black attitudes towards crime and punishment if you don't understand those decades. Because we'll talk about crack in a second, but the heroin, heroin was crack before it was crack in, in terms of its impact. On black communities, you know, I talk to my students today about war on drugs and epidemics. They, some of them remember crack maybe from like the wire or something, but, but heroin in the 1960s and you get blank stares. But heroin was so devastating in black communities in the 1960s. They tested everybody entering the DC jail to, for different substances. And in 1963, they concluded that 3% of the people were heroin addicts. By 1969, the 3% had become 45%. Now, that's an epidemic. And when you look at homicide, the murder rate nationally doubled in the 1960s. In D.C., it tripled. In a lot of black communities, it more than doubled. And so when those two things are happening at the same time, and it looks to people like the community is, is almost falling apart around them. And then, remember, that's right before... These first black representatives come into office. So they come into office with heroin right on their minds. And you see how it influences political debate over and over again. One of the, one of the stories that I tell is about the push to decriminalize marijuana in D.C. in 1975. One of the people who opposes it is, a guy, is Jackie Robinson, the baseball great. His son, Jackie Robinson's son, Jackie Jr., was a heroin addict. Jackie Robinson goes to churches and community centers, politicians around the country in black communities. He's in Jet Magazine, big magazine in the black community, especially then. And he says, don't decriminalize marijuana because my son Jackie Jr. is a heroin addict. And he started with marijuana. And when Jackie Robinson speaks up, you know, that's an influential voice. So then you get crack two decades later in the 80, late, mid to late 80s and early 90s. And you see the same thing happening again in terms of the rise in, in use, the rise in addiction, and the rise in uh, violence, and then subsequently in incarceration. The chapter five of my book is called The Worst Thing to Hit Us Since Slavery, because, and it's on the crack years. And it's because 
that was a phrase that was used more than a few times by African American representatives and activists. Crack is the worst thing to hit us in slavery. That's the existential threat that the drug seemed to pose at the time. One of the passages in that book, in that chapter, I describe every day the death toll in D.C. in a single month. And every day you open the paper and you see somebody else has died. It gets to the point where they're like little blurbs, not even on the cover story, on the cover page of the newspaper anymore because it's barely news. Another person has died. Another person has died. So-and-so found shot behind the alley. So-and-so found with a bullet in the back of his head outside of a warehouse. So-and-so robbed and killed and the house set on fire day after day after day. It got to the point in the 80s where when they were preparing soldiers, sorry, when they were preparing medics to go to the first Gulf War in the early 90s, they had them train at big city hospitals to prepare them for what it was like to deal with that kind of carnage that they were going to see in wartime. And people remember that. And so today, even today, although it's changing with generations, but certainly when you talk to older people, it's very hard to get them to understand, have a conversation about the criminal justice system, including violence, without coming back to either crack, or if you're talking older folks, like people in my dad's generation, that are in their 70s, 80s now. Heroin. What are some of the similarities and differences between how drugs and guns have been regulated in the U.S.? Well, of course, we have the Second Amendment, so that's a big distinction, right, between guns and drugs, and the especially now that the Supreme Court has interpreted the Second Amendment the way that it has to include the individual rights there's much less legal ability to regulate guns through the criminal law than certainly there is to regulate drugs. And you've never seen with guns necessarily, at least with gun possession, you've never seen the kind of length of sentences that you will see with drugs. Having said that, I think there are some similarities. And in the chapter of my book on gun control, which is the second chapter, it basically tells the story of how it came to be that gun control became so popular among African-American local elected officials. D.C. passes one of the strictest gun control laws in the country in 1975. It's the law that eventually, decades later, the Supreme Court would review and strike down in Heller, D.C. versus Heller. But it's, you know, on the books for basically over 35 years. And the reason why that's, it's somewhat paradoxical that gun control would become so popular is that African-Americans have a long tradition of gun ownership. So that chapter, that chapter is very historical because I go back into the South, especially into the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and you see figures like Fannie Lou Hamer, and, and, you know, not just the people that know, you know, pe- Malcolm X, people associate, but, but almost everybody 
who you could think of as a Southern civil rights figure, talks about having guns. Those that are from the South say, you know, the gun is just a part of our life. And they specifically say, in the context of racial violence, we need guns because we know the law is not going to protect us. We know the sheriff is not going to come if we call. Because half the time, the Klan and the sheriff are one and the same. So you know I have to have a gun. That's as recent as the 1960s. So then by the 1970s, when gun violence is rising, the homicide rate, as I mentioned before, is doubled in the 60s, tripled in D.C. And gun control is proposed. You get a council member like a person named Doug Moore, who's my main character in Chapter 2, and he says we shouldn't limit our ability to control, have guns. We shouldn't have gun control. And he specifically points to the history of gun ownership, and he says black people are gun-owning people. We've all, we can't count on the law. However, he loses, and gun control passes in D.C. and in many other cities where African-American elected officials have power. And the reason I think that it passes, basically I argue in the book, is twofold. One, the level of violence had risen, risen so high. And again, for people that have an all-of-the-above strategy, right, that want to do everything, gun control is one of the things that you try to do. But also the na- the the nature of the enemy had changed and the level of trusted government had changed at the same time. So by the 1970s, when the D.C. Council is contemplating passing gun control, 11 of 13 members of the D.C. Council are African American. They control the police department. And so their message to voters is, we got you. Like, the police are going to respond now. That's the point of electing us. We're going to demand a response by the police. And although the police, although the police chief wasn't African-American at the time, he soon would be. And so there's a way in which when you're looking up at the D.C. Council, you could say, okay, the law is going to do it this time. And so I don't need a gun myself if I can count on the police to come. And also the enemy had changed in people's minds, so no longer was it the Klansmen going to shoot at my house because I'm trying to, write to, to exercise the right to vote, and more like it's I'm going to get robbed on my way to work or my way to school or someone's going to burglarize my home. And so I need I can't have guns out on the street that facilitate that. So that's the idea. But then the tragedy of the story and the tragedy of the chapter is you get local gun control, but you don't ever get national gun control, which they were hoping for. So as a result today, we have cities in D.C. where young, mostly young, mostly African-American, mostly men are still getting picked up, still getting prosecuted, and in many cases still getting locked up for possession of something which across the border in Virginia, is legal. And so I, one of the arguments that I make is that in the same way that we have noticed how criminalizing a problem has led to racial disparities in the drug war, we should have that same analysis or at least have a similar analysis, not identical, for guns. And we should say, you know, maybe there's a way to, to address this social problem without 
or outside the criminal law. Why was increased law enforcement often the only option considered, or even when other solutions were discussed, often chosen as the best option when responding to issues in the Black community? I think two things. One is racism, and in the particular manifestation of racism, I mean the relative societal indifference to Black suffering. So when these legislators come before the come to the nation, come to Congress, and say, you know, here are pleas. We want, you know, our children are dying and we need more funding for schools and we need better health care and we need um, jobs. We need to provide economic opportunity. They run up against a national government that is still has trouble caring about black lives. When they ask for more police and more prosecutors, then that fits into the narrative that the nation has always subscribed to a black criminality. So that people are like, oh, okay. You need to go after the black criminals? Okay, all right. We're we're in for that. Because we've always defined that as a uh, attribute of blackness in this country. But if you want to provide health care for black children, well, there's less compassion there. So that's a piece of it. The other piece of it is, and that's most of it, I should say. And the other piece of it, though, is, 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 a, is we in the African-American community and liberals, progressives, allies have also, we've had our, our imaginations have been constrained. So there's ways in which we haven't even noticed that we too turn to law enforcement. Even those of us that don't Think of ourselves as, you know, pro, you know, pro punitive state. Now, one of the stories that I tell and people that I write about in the book is a guy named Dave Clark, who is, uh, will eventually becomes the chair of the city council. But when DC's first elected city council, 13 members, 11 are black, two are white. Dave Clark's one of the two white members. He's went to Howard Law School. He worked with Martin Luther King. He becomes a lawyer for poor people. And then there's local elections. He says, I'm running. And he gets elected. And he's not a drug warrior at all. He fights for marijuana legalization as one of his first campaigns. But then a few years later, he starts getting letters as chair of the city council saying from people that are saying, you know, there's addicts in my, in front of my house or in front of my backyard. There's, there's, there's junkies sitting outside nodding off. They're making life miserable. They're scaring away my customers. My kids can't go out and play. Do something about it. Dave Clark takes those letters and he sends them to the head of a relevant public agency. He says, we got a problem. He gets the letters back from the head of the agency saying, Councilmember Clark, I got your letters. I'm on it. Clark then takes those letters and sends them back to the citizens saying, hey, look, I got your complaint. I forwarded it along. They're going to take care of it. And that's all good. But the problem is who he sent it to. It wasn't the head of the Department of Mental Health, the head of the Department of Health, Addiction Services, Drug Treatment and Rehabilitation. It was a police chief. Because even somebody like Dave Clark, who's not a drug warrior at all, in fact, I think lots of progressives in his position would do the same thing. Because in America, we've come to define a problem of disorder or a problem of poverty or a problem of people being in public places 
or any really kind of social problem, our first instinct, school discipline, our first instinct to a problem is law enforcement, is police. And so when that's your mentality, even among the people who are not the drug warriors, if that's your, or the crime warriors, if we bought into that, then it becomes almost natural to say, oh, well, you know, let's get more police officers. You know, liberals criticized the Clinton crime legislation in the ni- in early 90s, but not for hiring more police officers. That was something that was very much supported across the board, almost you almost universally. So what I'm trying to say is that we've all bought in. We've overbought the notion that social problems are police problems. Could you discuss the relationship between the students at the school you co-founded, the Maya Angelou Public Charter School, and the police? Absolutely. That's the topic of the fourth, uh, the fifth chapter of the book. I open with a, a, a series of vignettes of you know, police conduct towards the students. And basically, the story is that our kids are trying to take a break from school in the middle of the school day. This particular spring, things got especially bad. And the jump-out squads, which are mainly drug enforcement, they can be other kinds of enforcement, but they're undercover and they basically blast up to a corner and everyone jumps out, police jump out, and they chase people down and they put them up against the wall. They have them assume the position. They stop them. They frisk them. And they were doing that on on the corner of our school to our kids while they were on break. And you can't, again, you know, one of the reasons I tell some of these stories, and I hope is vivid detail in the book, is it's very hard for people that haven't lived under that kind of law enforcement to understand what it's like to just have your world turned upside down, to be treated so violently, to be treated like you are a criminal when actually what you're trying to do is turn your life around because the kids that we were focused on working with were overwhelmingly kids who not only were poor and not only had educational deficits, but in many cases had been themselves or new kids or had family members who were in the criminal justice system. And so we're trying to persuade them, our students, that if they toe the line and they study hard and they follow the rules, that society will create a place for them. But what the police are doing through this treatment of the students, through this aggressive, suspicionless, stop, search, frisk, questioning, humiliation, really, is how the students experienced it. What they're doing is telling the students, don't believe these people. You're never going to be anything. You're never going to be more than nothing. You're never going to be a full, equal citizen that gets the opportunity to walk down the street free of coercion and free of degradation and free of police violence. In what ways do class divisions within the black community influence attitudes and actions on matters of crime and punishment? Well, class is a big theme in this book, and it's something that I think is still very, very underdeveloped in the literature. And, you know, I try to make some progress in this book, but it's definitely, I would say, an area that where my discussion is perhaps more more kind of speculative than in some of the other topics. 
I'm gesturing in the direction of certain ideas, but I don't necessarily have it all worked out in my head and I don't fully have the evidence basis for each of, for, you know, to really kind of tell that story fully. But my instinct is that it matters in a variety of ways. I mean, first of all, at the simplest level, and this is true not just in the black community, this is true nationwide, at the simplest level, criminal law is made and enforced principally by people who have college degrees or law degrees who, however they started out in life, have arrived now in the middle class, if not elites. And the victims of mass incarceration, that is to say the people who get incarcerated, and this is true across races, are overwhelmingly poor, undereducated, and come from often circumstances of, of, you know, horrific abuse and addiction. And so you just have a class dimension up, you know, right up front in terms of who's making the law and who the law is being enforced upon. And that's, again, I'm writing about this in the black community, but I would encourage readers that are, you know, not only or even not principally interested in African-American politics and thought to ask about how this impacts more broadly, whether it's white community, Latino community, various Asian communities, et cetera. I think there's a, there's a lot, you know, if I were a graduate student or a PhD student or, you know, somebody looking for something to write about who's listening to this conversation, I would say this is an area that really deserves some attention. So you also can see it, again, just to return to the black community, you can see it in, in, in probably this number, which is from Bruce Western at Harvard University. And I think it, it illustrates the point maybe the best. If you're an African-American man who's dropped out of high school, your lifetime risk of going to prison in, in your life is 10 times that of an African-American man who's attended college. And given everything we know about economic status and who, you know, and whether you go to college or drop out of high school, we can see a relationship right there. You also see it in terms of patterns of policing. So one of the chapters of the book, chapter six, is where I talk about pretext policing or investigatory stops. This is basically like vehicle stop and search, right? Where the police pull you over just really for, for, for not, for no, well, they pull you over because they want to search the car but they give as the reason a violation of the traffic laws. And most skilled officers will tell you, I can follow any car 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to find some violation. And that regime, which was unleashed in D.C., was targeted at the poorest black neighborhoods. Now, those were the neighborhoods that had the highest crime rates. So it wasn't an irrational distinction, right? You could understand why somebody with good intentions thought that that would make sense. But, of course, the way that it was unleashed meant that because the police don't just get the guns that they're looking for. They get all lots of small stuff as well. They get drugs, including small amounts of drugs. And the police aren't authorized to just ignore drugs when they find them, even if that's not their focus. And so what you do, what it means is that if you're poor and you're black, you're more likely to get stopped, you're more likely to get searched, and then you're more likely to get found with things that in other parts of town, both the white neighborhoods, but also the middle and upper middle class black neighborhoods, the police would never stop you to begin with. And so you're never going to be found with the drugs. And I rely on research by sociologist named Ron Weitzer at GW, 
who did terrific field research documenting the disparities, not just in race, but in class in the black community in D.C. And also what he finds is that people know what's going on. So when he interviews residents of black neighborhoods, poor black neighborhoods, they know that this kind of stop and searching of vehicles isn't happening in white communities, and they know that it's happening at a much lower rate in middle and upper middle class black. They say black communities. They say, well, over there they have lawyers and doctors and judges, and they know they can't do this. And I lived on a street, a black middle class, upper middle class neighborhood, with multiple judges. And it's true. They knew they couldn't do it. So this is a big theme in your book. To what extent have small choices at the local level led to the phenomenon of mass incarceration? That is a big argument and a big theme in my book. And, um, you know, some responses I've gotten from readers say that, you know, for some people that's the most interesting. I just got an email from a professor at UCLA whose name I won't mention because she didn't, I didn't ask for her permission. It was a private email, but she said, you know, that for me is the, the, the best thing I, the best argument that I found in the book that, that, that kind of changed my view on something. And I do think it's so tempting to look at a problem that's as overwhelming and grave and devastating as mass incarceration and try to find a particular president or a particular investigative order or a particular moment, you know, you'll read, oh, well, Nixon declared the war on drugs or Reagan declared a war on crime. And and, and we want to find that moment when, that we can attribute it to. But a big argument in my book is that we have to understand this as a series of small, sometimes imperceptible steps. Some of them taken by people of goodwill. Not all of them. There's plenty of, you know, Jeff Sessions characters throughout this book. But some of them taken by people of goodwill, people like Dave Clark. is a, That's a really good example of this phenomenon. The choice to call the police, not the Department of Mental Health, by somebody who's not a drug warrior, is exactly the kind of tiny decision that I think we haven't focused on as in fueling mass incarceration and the war on drugs, but that I think does and that I think did. And so I try to show in the book, and this is to me one of the advantages of writing about people, at least some of whom are sympathetic. You know, there there aren't that many books about the war on crime and the war on drugs that have any sympathetic characters in them. And one of the advantages of including some people like that is, and I don't argue that, again, that those are the only people involved, but including some of them is that you get to see some of these small choices that add up over time. So, yeah, I say that over 40 to 50 years, over 50 states, D.C., the federal government, 3,000 counties, if everybody gets 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 percent more punitive, then nobody has to even, some people don't even notice what they're doing. They don't even notice, right? Because we might not notice 5 or 10 or 15% change in our behavior. And so that's, I think, one of the the things that's driven this phenomenon and makes it so hard to unwind because it's hard to convince people that they're part of the problem. 
How does the diffuse structure of the criminal justice system contribute to the growth of the carceral system? Well, I think I kind of touched on that in the last answer. It's that there's, it's, it's not only that there's some people of goodwill that are involved making bad decisions, but also that because no individual, you know, the, the police don't speak to the prosecutors and the prosecutors don't speak to the judges who don't speak to the parole or probation officers. And, and so they don't all have to get together and coordinate and say, you know, let's lock up one half of this community. But if they all get harsher and they get all get harsher at the same time, it generates this momentum towards mass incarceration. What are some of your policy recommendations? How do we get towards justice that requires accountability, but not vengeance? Well, I think we have to start with the standpoint that, and this is what I write about, you know, I focus on this in the epilogue of the book, but we have to start by recognizing that people that are living in neighborhoods that have high levels of crime and violence, they deserve a reaction from the state. They deserve protection. They deserve a response. So going to the days that I described before when you couldn't, you know, even call, when you didn't even call the police in the black community, that's to me not an option. At the same time, it's also true that we have to provide people with a response that actually is truly responsive. So when I look at things like just in the last, I think, day or two, the state of Illinois passed legislation, which is aimed at uh, helping to reduce the reliance on prisons, but not just that, simultaneously taking some of that money and reinvesting it in trauma services that will go to victims of crime. See, because one of the problems is, is that we've told crime victims in this country that the way we're going to, the way we're going to make you whole is by locking up the person that committed the crime. The thing is, if you give people that choice, prison and nothing, they'll take prison. But polling by, uh, and research by the Alliance for Justice, which is an incredible organization, shows what I felt like I saw routinely in D.C., which is that if you give people a wider range of options, including if you give victims of crime a wider range of options, and you start to say, well, what about a restorative justice program in which the person who is victimized gets to talk about how they were harmed and the person who committed the harm gets to talk about uh, their how sorry they are they are and their remorse and gets to tell their story and start explain some of the context of their life and some of the things that push them into that decision, not to defend the decision, but to explain. And what if we provide addiction services or mental health treatment if that's what's appropriate for the person who committed the crime? And what if we find provide trauma counseling for the person who is victimized? If we start to provide a range of alternatives like that, a lot of crime victims will say, oh, I'd rather have that than just locking the person up and doing nothing else. And so I think organizations like Impact Justice out of Oakland that are really pushing this work, I think that we're starting to see uh, really nationally a trend towards people trying to not just reduce mass incarceration, but replace it with something else. What are your thoughts about the sentencing policies proposed by the Trump administration? They're terrible. I mean, Attorney General Sessions is, 
you know, he's been called a crime dinosaur. And, you know, I would add to that, that he's, he's shockingly ill-informed for somebody who is the nation's chief law enforcement officer. So, I mean, just to give one example, because to me it just shows that it's not just a question of judgment. It's just a question of the facts. So he said in his speech, and these are in his prepared remarks, not off the cuff. This is on the DOJ website. And he said it in his speech. He said that marijuana is only slightly less awful than heroin. Well, that's a deadly misstatement because heroin caused 13,000 deaths from heroin overdoses last year, and marijuana caused zero. So if the nation's top law enforcement officer is saying things that are palpably and provably false, but that are like things that we heard 40 years ago when we didn't know as much as we know now, then it's a disaster for criminal justice policies. The only really hope that I have is this issue that we talked about earlier, which is that since an overwhelming majority of criminal policy is made at the state and local level, since 88% of people in this country incarcerated are in state, county, and local prisons, and only 12% are in the federal prison, really the only thing containing and constraining, um, you know, the terrible ideas coming from the attorney general's office is the fact that they have, his influence is limited. What can people who are listening to this podcast do to push against mass incarceration? I would almost really I almost restate the question to ask, what can't you do in the sense of, of to me, one of the, the worst thing about this system and sort of harsh, punitive criminal justice, criminal court system that we have is how it's embedded its way into every aspect of American society. At the same time, that does present an opportunity, which is that you almost just pick your place and there's a fight to be had. So, you know, the most impactful single thing probably that anybody can do is to get involved in their local county prosecutors, uh, the politics around that. You know, most people don't know Many people don't know that their local prosecutor is elected, which they are in not everywhere, but in most of the country. And of the people who know that, most don't know what their actual policies are. But increasingly, that's starting to change. In the last election cycle, last November, we had a slew of progressive prosecutors elected. And that's because Americans said, you know what, wait, wait a minute. This is crazy what's happening. It's immoral, it's expensive, it's unjust. And so in Florida and Alabama and Texas and Colorado and Chicago, last month in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner won the Democratic primary uh, for, for a local prosecutor. He's a civil rights lawyer who ran for prosecutor. Like that sentence, civil rights lawyer ran for prosecutor, that wasn't uttered in the period my book covers. In all these states that I just mentioned, progressive people ran for local prosecutors and they ran on campaigns that said, the war on drugs is causing terrible damage and we need bail reform. And my predecessor locked up innocent people, too many wrongful convictions. You know, they ran many of them on very progressive camp planks against the death penalty and they won. 
I mean, a guy in Texas, a defense attorney with the words not guilty tattooed on his chest, ran for local prosecutor and won. That did not happen in the period of time this book, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you would have been laughed off the ballot. So that can only happen. That's only happening because Americans are becoming aware that of the harshness and injustice of the system. So paying attention to you're lo- running for local prosecutor. If again, you don't even you don't have to be. People think, well, I have to be a prosecutor. Well, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, he wasn't a prosecutor. He ran from outside the prosecutor's office. So run for or support or demand that whoever is your local prosecutor recognize some of these issues. Funding public defense is another huge issue that people can work on. Uh, we 2% of right now of the funding nationally in our criminal justice, criminal court system is for public defenders. 2%. That should be 10%, 15%, 20%. Hey, you know. I mean, 50% is probably too much to ask for, but let's think big. And then outside of the system itself, there are employers. You know, probably everybody who's listening is an employer or has an employer. And we have to ask what our employers are doing about hiring people with criminal convictions. The Historically... And one of the stories that I tell in the book, one of my clients who was arrested under this pretext policing regime, she loses her job for possession of marijuana because, not because of anything, well, the court system started the process, the police started the process, but in the end her case is dismissed, but she loses her job because her employer has a rule that says if you're on probationary status and you get arrested, even if the arrest is dismissed, you cannot get off probationary status. You have to be terminated. That's an employer decision. So asking the, your university that you work for, what are their policies about, you know, what's their admissions form look like? In terms, does it have, you know, question number three, have you ever been arrested, which is very demoralizing for people, and they often don't even finish the application. Same for the employment application. And then go further. Don't just ban the box or not ask, but how about affirmative internships, paid internships, for people, and you explicitly advertise, we're hiring and we are recruiting and interested in considering including people that have criminal convictions. Don't don't fail to apply on that reason. Because one of the things is so many people now are scared they won't even apply for jobs that they could get. Because it's humiliating to constantly not get hired because you have a criminal conviction. And so we got to announce to people that we are willing to hire them. So Again, I just, that's three or four, but we could do 50 more if we had the time. Um, There's almost nothing uh, that you can't do on this topic. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.